This is the first Sunday in Lent, and so it affords the opportunity to uh, recapitulate some of what I said on Ash Wednesday, which established the predicates for the season, the major themes which we'll see uh, rise up in the coming weeks, things like repentance, reconciliation, uh, godly motives. But I thought I'd say something a little first about the origin of the season of Lent uh, and then focus on the gospel. Every first Sunday in Lent, we read one of the gospels from Matthew, Mark, or Luke uh, about the temptation of Christ in the wilderness and what this might mean in terms of uh, the way in which we begin the solemn season of Lent. I hadn't intended to preach on the reading from Romans But at 8 o'clock this morning, when I heard it read again, it wasn't like John Wesley. I didn't feel my heart strangely warmed. (laughs) But I did see or hear in it an insight that's important to, to share. Paul is talking, as he does in Romans, about the importance of faith. And it's important, particularly in a season like Lent, where faith is one of the things that's going to assist us in the process of the spiritual purifications that we seek during this season. Faith precedes belief systems. Faith precedes belief systems. Faith is the start, and then the great faith traditions bring uh, belief systems, shapes and forms to how we understand living the faith. And we believe as Christian people that we're the heirs of a long history of salvation. And what you heard in Deuteronomy today is uh, part of that great history of salvation where it affirms something very important. The people of Israel were haunted by a presence. When they were in the desert, they realized that Something bigger than they were was with them in this process. And ultimately, as they began to bring some shape and form to their faith that that was so, they produced the law, the Ten Commandments, as a container for the way in which they understood how they would live as a people and how they would acknowledge on a regular basis that uh, Yahweh was their God and that they were now going to be governed in some sense by the precepts that seemed to flow from their their ability to feel and think about this presence. And so too, that's the same for us. You know, most human beings are able to access some faith, or at least the acknowledgement that there is something animating their life or available to them, that will permit them to get greater clarity and insight into how they must live, uh, why are they here, what should their vocation be, all of those things. So faith is very, very important, and it precedes belief systems. The season of Lent begins actually the first cycle that was developed in, in, in liturgical churches or in the church, the Christian church, in the early uh, period, in the first two centuries. And it was 
uh, Lent, Easter, Pentecost. And then the second post that came in was Advent, Christmas, Epiphany. But we celebrate that first. So we celebrate them out of order. And now we're where the rubber hits the road. Lent, Easter, Pentecost. And in the course of all of this, they began to understand the importance of some kind of preparation that would take place before Easter. And it originally was just three days, and then it became a week, Holy Week. And then ultimately we had uh, the other weeks attached, uh, and we now call that Lent. And it is a time for some form of uh, understanding of how we get our emotional, spiritual, and mental states in order and maybe look at uh, our lives in a little bit more intense and searching way. You know, there is a sin in the catalog of sins uh, known as scrupulosity. And when we talk about the processes of self-examination and repentance, uh, we need to be careful, as I said on Ash Wednesday, of bringing into closer proximity the letter and the spirit, that that is what is necessary. So you and I aren't to be engaged in developing elaborate laundry lists for the season of Lent, but beginning to see how we can take some steps to improve our character and our self-understanding as we live. Father Thomas Keating speaks about this as the process of learning to cope with uh, the three energy centers that animate all human life, security and survival, affection and esteem, and power and control. And it is through confronting these things and understanding them that we begin to get some understanding about who we are and what we ought to be doing as human beings. Let's go to the, the story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Have you ever noticed... Um, Lent is 40 days long. Moses, last week, went up the mountain and was on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments for 40 days. And Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days. And I think somewhere in the Elijah-Elisha cycle... 40 days was involved also. As Mother McNeil pointed out, uh, it means in the biblical context uh, a long time. But isn't it interesting that 40 days appears in all of these things? And somehow that means that in a uh, liturgical, spiritual sense as Christian people, we're following the Savior into the desert for 40 days. But we need to understand that following the Savior into the desert is not following him into a geographical location. It is following him into the place of interior purification. I really uh, feel awkward sometimes using the term purification because that's a very uh, loaded word for many people. You know, in Matthew's Gospel... Most of the English translations that we have read in the Episcopal Church uh, trans say, say, have Jesus saying, you must be perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. 
And when you read it in the Greek, you come to the word teleios, which means mature. I don't know about you, but mature is easier for me to get than perfect. And I also know that a lot of people have become sick or crazy uh, trying to become perfect. So when I start talking about Jesus' temptation, uh, we're not seeking some species of perfection here, but we are speaking about what might it look like if we were to make some internal progress and relational progress in the course of any Lenten season, and how might we understand the nature of maturity. And one of the ways we might understand the nature of maturity is to take responsibility for your own being and destiny. The great saints of God knew they were dependent on no one for their salvation, except God. So you and I have to, on a regular basis, uh, struggle with the confusion that all of us face from time to time about where we begin and end and other people begin and end. And how do we begin to understand where we're dependent for our salvation? And part of Lent is maybe learning to, to some degree, unpack a little bit of that confusion. Jesus goes into the wilderness. Interesting, by the way, the season of Lent began uh, as a time that was the final intense preparation for those who were going to be baptized on Easter, the only time of year anybody got baptized. And so for the first three centuries or four centuries of Christian history, the normative age for baptism was adulthood. The church always baptized infants and young children because we believed that we had a biblical warrant to do so in the New Testament, where in more than one place it mentions that Paul or some of the other apostles baptized households. And so this was always done. But the normative age for baptism was primarily adulthood, and in some places the preparation took three years. And then you were baptized on Easter. Constantine becomes the emperor in 314 AD. And now he does not merely make Christianity tolerated in the Roman Empire. He declares it to be the only legal religion in the Roman Empire. So pretty soon, most of the adults got baptized. Pronto, as they would say in Italy, pronto. So now we're baptizing mostly infants and young children as time goes on. And the emphasis on baptismal promises and the power of baptism and the idea that it is every Christian person's ordination is subordinated to other concerns, just as noble in some ways, but tending now to obscure the baptismal centrality to the season and the reflection on the promises that we make at our baptism or if we were baptized as infants to begin now to understand in greater depth as we mature, as we seek to take responsibility for our own being and destiny. So the emphasis became 
prayer, almsgiving, and fasting. All laudable things, but it's not either or, it's both and. And so when we begin to understand what does it mean to be in the season of Lent, it isn't just to undertake hair-raising austerities uh, that you may think will help you get back to uh, a right relationship with God. Don't give those things up. If you do that, it's not bad, but we have a fuller and deeper understanding of the recovery of what this season meant in its origins, and that's important. Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days, right after his baptism, and he's there for 40 days, and it's a period of prayer and contemplation for him, and at the end now, he uh, is tempted. And you know, temptation is something that Christian people have always worried about. Perhaps one of the great worriers in this regard was St. Augustine. St. Augustine uh, came up with a threefold understanding of what it means to be tempted and how this process works. The first, in Latin, the first thing is suggestio, suggestion. The second thing is moving forward, delectatio, delight. And the third thing is consensus. Go for it, right? Now, I'm sure he would say, and he, when he wrote elaborately about this, you need to cut this baby off at suggestio immediately and certainly at delectatio before we get anywhere near consensus. But you know, there's most of us about some things that say, I can resist anything but temptation. How would a simpler, maybe not simpler way, that's, that's not true really in some ways, but one of the things that uh, this means in terms of thinking about temptation in the spiritual life is learning more uh, how to self-regulate instinctual drives. And that's particularly hard in an age where we believe in the triumph of the autonomous self, that that's the highest good. So if I think I want to do this, I do, you know, or I need to, or it's whatever. What kind of self-interior self-regulation do you need to engage in uh, with regard to that sort of thing? Jesus is in the wilderness and he's tempted. And here's what Father Keating says about what, what went on from his vantage. Jesus redeemed us from the consequence of our emotional programs for happiness by experiencing them himself. As a human being, he passed through the pre-rational stages of developing human consciousness, immersion in matter, the emergence of a body self, and the development of conformity consciousness over identification with one's family, nation, ethnic group, and religion. He had to deal with the particular but limited values of each level of human development from infancy to the age of reason without, of course, ever ratifying with his will their illusory projects 
for happiness. This means that when you read and uh, sing in hymns, that Jesus has been everywhere that we are. That's what that means, that he was able to do. Jesus appears in the desert as the representative of the human race. He bears within himself the experience of the human predicament in its raw intensity. So when we speak of Jesus as the template that we lay over our own spiritual development and maturity, it has something to do with a reflection on he has been everywhere that we have been. In him, we have seen the highest and best of human potential realized. And not only have we seen that, we have learned from him that we are able to do it ourselves. We are able to move in a direction where we seek and find the ways in which we now become cooperators with God in God's plan for the cosmos, that we're necessary in the course of this. And how we do that is part of the spiritual life. He was tempted around the three energy centers, security and survival, turn this stone into bread, affection, esteem, and approval. All these places in the world will be yours. You will be glorified by everybody. This is within my power. And throw yourself off this pinnacle in Jerusalem and God will protect you. Power and control. And Jesus was able to resist all of these things. These three temptations are all about vocation. And the three energy centers all come to us in various guises when we think about who we are and what we're supposed to do. And we're tempted either to forsake our vocation or to not listen when a new vocational possibility comes to us. We simply don't have the internal strength or the will to be able to resist the reactivity that we get from people when we think that this is what our vocation might be. For example, we find ourselves uh, incapable of that sort of strength, that internal strength. And this is about how to gain uh, that kind of strength to assist in the embrace of the vocation that God is calling to you or to reaffirm and revivify the vocation that you're in now that you believe keenly is something that you need to be. You know, in the old spiritual, in the old catechism that we used to use at St. Michael's Church in Tucson, there was a question, what is the soul? The soul is the reason and the will. And what does Father Keating say here? Jesus was able to go through everything that we have gone through without ratifying them by his will. So our will has an important role to play in the spiritual life and the maturing of understanding that. One of the things that most of us don't learn or have to learn over and over again is that we cannot will change in others. You know? When I was at the rector of Christ Church Sausalito, uh, we had a lot of weddings there because it's Sausalito and it's on the hill and people wanted to get married there. And so we 
we did, I did a lot of marriage. I think I probably there, I did about 500 weddings while I was there. And the Episcopal Church requires people to meet at least three times with, with the, the priest before they're married. So you talk to them, you get to know them pretty well. And I mean, if they're parishioners, you obviously do. But if you're marrying people who aren't members of the parish, and over and over again, I would encounter, and I suspect everybody who's ever done this has, people talking about certain, uh, you know, edgy places in their relationship. And then there would be the confident comment by one of them, oh, I know, well, he or she does this, but when we're married, that will all change. That will all change. I will be able to now prevail and uh, show the wisdom uh, to whoever that uh, this change is not only appropriate but necessary. Right? No, 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 no. You cannot will change in others. But you can, through your will, ratify the development and the strengthening of your own character. And one of the definitions of character is to live your life according to certain principles. And Lent is a time to recover them because we all just get, you know, distracted. And we then realize, you know, I got to get back on track about that. The big question we should ask ourselves is another thing that Augustine used to talk about, and that is he'd ask the question, why are we all so restless? Why are we restless? We're not content. And we have every reason in some way to be content. You do have to be careful about that because, you know, some people have said, uh, every, time, every time you think things are going well, watch out. Right? So you need to be a little careful about that kind of thing. But why are we restless? He had a fancy word for it, concupiscent. Concupiscence. Why is it that human beings are restless? So he said, all of us are restless until we find our rest in thee, in God. So the spiritual life has something to do with the movement towards that possibility. This week, give thanks for the uh, opportunity to take a peek at your emotional programs for happiness, to change the direction that you're looking for happiness, maybe to be that much less restless, and to uh, give thanks for a God who is present to you during this entire process and will never leave. Amen. Thank you.